Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Whatever that probe is picking up, it's reading life form. What do you mean a life form? Oh, the head. They're changing. Changing into what? It's moving. These things moving? What is that? There's a ship. They're leaving. To go where? Earth. We were so wrong. Take us home! If you don't stop it, there won't be any home to go back to. Where's that door open? Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by my host, Patrick. Hey, guys. And this evening, we are joined by Charles de la Zarica, the director of Various Gods, The Making of Prometheus. Sorry for the pause there. <laughs> uh, and this is another one of our episodes in our Prometheus uh, series that we're launching. We apologize for the the delay. Uh, as everyone knows, the world and certainly America is going through a pandemic. Um, we, we are uh, getting as much um, content out as we can in the middle of everything else that we're going through. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you have been quarantined. Many of us are quarantined. Um, how are you doing? Besides, before we get into everything, how, how is life for you? I mean, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's you know, it's kind of a a very interesting time that we're in, and I think what makes it really strange is we have no idea how it's going to turn out. So we're kind of just all on pins and needles, waiting to see what's going on. But uh, everything here at my place is is pretty you know safe and healthy, and my wife and I are doing great, and we're just sort of laying low and staying in touch with friends and family. And uh, you know, we've had a few people, a few you know friends of mine uh, get you know, coronavirus and, uh, had a relative, uh, pass away recently because of it. So it's sort of like, you know, it's starting oh, to wow. take effect and it's starting to like imp- impact our lives and it's becoming a, a thing that is not just on television, you know? So, uh, but on the whole, I think we're taking good care of ourselves. And I think, you know, um, we're really trying to be, you know, very solid in how we approach the day and, uh, and just try to not go insane by being stir crazy in the, in the house all the time, you know? Um, but, uh, I'm really, I'm really hopeful that uh, this all turns out for the better in the end, and we all make it through as, you know, hopefully better people. And uh, you were saying uh, uh, before we started recording, this is your, this is the fourth week you've been in uh, in quarantine, correct? And in, in, mm-hmm. in isolation, yeah, it's, this is the, this is the, the middle of the fourth week of uh, mine too, and it, it's like, yeah. it's far enough along now that it has become, it's gone past surreal into like some sort of a yeah. new, a new normal routine, and I think that is what I'm finding surreal now that it's just sort of that this is just my life at this point and it's um very strange it is i mean it's strange not having a regular schedule it's strange and especially for me because i'm on the east coast so when i deal with la for work or friends or whatever it's already strange in terms of like the time difference but now it's even more so because 
folks in LA are sort of like on a different schedule. So I, I just think we're all just, just trying to do the best we can and, you know, get through this, this nightmare. Yeah, it is certainly surreal. Like, I mean, again, I'm out in the community almost every day and I was in the grocery store today and everybody had masks on. You see the plexiglass in front of each cashier because I was buying some groceries for clients. And I, I looked at, I looked, just looked at like myself in, like the reflection of the plexiglass and looking at everyone around me and thinking, how is this the reality that we're living in when we've seen this in every movie and every everything? And now here we are walking this every day. It's just, it's crazy. But uh, uh, I'm glad that you guys are healthy. Uh, I'm really sorry for the death of uh, one of your family members. That's, that's rough. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I say that we move on, and this episode we really wanted to focus on, at least I wanted to focus on, and me and Patrick had been discussing how Ridley Scott returned to the Alien franchise. And that was talked about for many, many years. There was uh, an article at one point that I read um, where he went on set for Alien 3, and he spoke to uh, David Fincher and uh, Ridley Scott was supposed to be attached to Alien 3 and he was for a minute but then I, I don't know if that's true but that's what the article said and then he wasn't attached at all and then Fincher directed the Alien 3 then you had Alien Resurrection and the idea of Ridley Scott coming back to the Alien franchise was a pipe dream really it was something that was probably never going to happen the The word was he, would, he never wanted to repeat himself he did Alien uh, he thought the franchise uh what he created or helped to begin was great. And that was that. And then 2011, they announced Prometheus. Um, yeah. So I, I think it kind of goes more into the territory of not him um, looking to get back into the alien franchise so much as he was trying to look into getting back into science fiction. And he had been looking at a lot of different science fiction projects. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'll just tell you how I first found out about it was I was interviewing Ridley for Robin Hood, for the 2010 Robin Hood. And at the very end of the interview, he just dropped it, like, without even any kind of, like, setup. It's like, oh, and I'm going to do Alien next. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and I actually had to, like, stop oh, for a second and then say, what, what, what are you doing next? He goes, yeah, I'm going to go back into Alien. I'm like, okay. Um, but that's how I found out. There was this, like, before it was in the, in the trades or anything. It was kind of just this strange little bomb he dropped. And, uh, and of course, me being a science fiction geek and an Alien fanatic, um, that was huge a huge thing for me. I got really excited. And I was just like, wow, I, you know, I can't believe this is finally going to happen. You're not only coming back to science fiction, but you're going to come back to alien. And especially because the alien franchise had been kind of all over the map at that point, um, in terms of good and bad and left and right and weird and strange and all that. So, um, so it was kind of like he was coming back to clean house in a way. That was the idea, I suppose. But, um, you know, I think it had more to do with the fact that around that time, a lot of big filmmakers were setting up their own franchises. Um, um, so you had like James Cameron doing the Avatar movies. You had Peter Jackson with the Hobbit movies or the, you know, the Middle Earth movies. You had, uh, you know, George Lucas bringing Star Wars back in multiple different ways, you know, throughout those years and beyond. So it was kind of like all of these big filmmakers, approximately Ridley's age, more or less, uh, were, I think they were all trying to set up a franchise, you know, like, okay, here's a title that's mine and I'm going to develop this world and it's going to be a universe filled with possibilities for movies or TV or games or comic books or whatever. I think they were all like trying to figure out what their little empire was going to be. And with, with Ridley, I think alien made the most sense at that time. So I think that's kind of where the, uh, the focus was, was on how do you 
kind of uh, rehabilitate the Alien universe, the franchise, uh, for a new generation, and uh, but also then make it fun for the original fans, the, the people who were kids when those movies came out, who are now adults and have their own kids. So um, I think that was the impetus to come back to it more than anything else. Now, so so you, you were in touch with Ridley, you know, obviously um, for projects, but you know, between uh, you know Blade Runner and his return to the franchise. And so I, I'm wondering, in the intervening years when you were working on Blade Runner, you know, on the final cut with him, when you were working on uh, the Alien features for the anthology, did 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 this come up at all? Was this something that he was kind of bouncing around? Was he thinking about this, or was this just sort of this was in his past and it wasn't something that he saw in his future? Um, I don't. I mean, I can only speak on specific conversations I had with him, but I, I don't remember much other than, I mean, there were other science fiction projects he was definitely interested in, but uh, like in terms of Alien, I know the idea of the space jockey being kind of like the key to the idea was something that he might have mentioned a few times um, in interviews or, you know, there was a screening that uh, we had at the Egyptian. Um, it was actually like the, the week of 9-11 and Ridley showed up and he showed Alien I did a Q&A after that and um, we actually put that on the, the Quadrilogy DVD set um, and that, you could tell he was thinking he was kind of like he was churning up in there and you know there was something percolating but I don't know if it was like literally I know the movie let's go make it right now it was just more of like yeah if, we ever, if it ever comes up again there's there's stuff there that uh, you know to unpack so I think that's kind of the only times it was ever really mentioned or even you know really considered but again it was always like in a public venue it was always in an interview it wasn't like something he came up and asked me about or anything because i was basically just following you know and i was just sort of like making sure that whatever movie he was working on it was being documented in the best possible way and then of course you know again when i when i got the news that he was going to do an alien movie uh, I, I flashed back to making the quadrilogy and then later the anthology box sets with my, my team and we're always, you know, just so just wishing we had more behind the scenes footage from the original alien. Uh, we, and, and my joke was, I wish I had a time machine. So I go back in time, 1978 or whatever, and start documenting alien the way you do nowadays, the way you do do with movies now, is just, just like you cover everything. You're there every day. You shoot every department, you have GoPros all over, whatever. Um, I always had this dream of time traveling back to alien and of course Blade Runner to, you know, do a more comprehensive documentation of those shoots. And I thought, oh, now I'm going to kind of get that chance with Prometheus, which at the time was not the title, but we were like, oh man, I'm going to get to cover an alien film and we can just really shoot the hell out of it and just do all the behind the scenes interviews and really just like completely go nuts, you know? And that's kind of what I, I did. I with myself and my team, we just really approached it that way. Like, let's pretend this is the original alien film and let's document it as though we were on the set of the original alien film. And I think that's why people love Furious God so much is because it feels like a like a real feature film in and of itself about the making of another feature film. It doesn't feel like just sort of this behind the scenes special feature or something. It's a real movie. And and the and the, the candid there's so many amazing fly in the wall moments where like you're looking at artwork that you've never seen before. You have people like Carlos Wante coming on, all these people who in the in the years since have gone on to have these really kind of illustrious careers who a lot of us saw for the first time in that film and like yeah, it's just, uh, it's, I'm not surprised that you um, put so much effort into getting behind the scenes footage for that because it really, really paid off. Thanks. I mean, it, and it was a lot of fun. It was probably the most fun I've ever had on any shoot ever um, because it was the alien universe. You know, I mean, even though it's 
slightly different than the original uh, ship. I mean, the Juggernaut, as we know it now, versus the Derelict and Alien. You know, there's some design changes, but it's still the ship. It's still the you got the chair, the space jockey chair. You've got all that. And I just remember walking onto the set that first time, and I just I literally zapped back into like being an 11 year old and just sort of like, oh my god, like staring up at all this big stuff and how great it was. But then also going on the set of the Prometheus of the ship itself and and how beautifully designed it was and it just it had the vibe of the Nostromo but with kind of a more of a modern almost like a Virgin Airlines vibe to it it was just it was just very loungy and cool but it still had this kind of retro futuristic thing with the video screens and everything so um, yeah it was it was a really a fun shoot to be on I mean it was it was huge it was epic but it was also just. It, I felt like a kid and, and like a I imagine it'd be like going to Galaxy's Edge for Star Wars. It's kind of like you're going to sort of, you know, the, the Prometheus version of that, of a, of a theme park. So what was the process? So say Ridley drops that information that Alien is going to be next, which is a surprise for you. And you have been working with him on his films, documenting his films. What is the process for you specifically? Um in the lead up to you flying over to, wasn't it, believe I was shot. It was shot in Australia, wasn't it? No, no, that was the that was the one after it. Uh, no, oh, it was that was Pinewood. Okay. Yeah, no, Prometheus was shot That's mostly right. at, at Pinewood in England, um, and then a little bit in Iceland, and just little bits and pieces elsewhere. But uh, no, before we get to that, there's like a whole year in LA um, of like mm-hmm. developing the script, doing the art department, like all that pre-production work uh, was. I, I would, I think it was about a year, maybe even a little bit more, but it was a long time because they were really working on the script. They were really designing the world. And um, it just took a while before Fox gave it the official green light. I mean, I think everyone felt felt like it was going to happen. It was just they really had to get the script to the studio's liking, but then also Ridley's liking and also making it producible and affordable and all these other things. So, um, yeah, that was that was all L.A. for the most part. Um, and, and then once the film was really greenlit and went into true pre-production in England, that's that's a whole other adventure. But L.A. was mostly script and art department. So at what point at for you then um, as the documentarian, when you're in L.A. and when they're going through all of uh, those processes, are you like, OK, we need to start documenting? When does that conversation happen with you and your team? Well, you know, studios all have different um, sort of rationales for how they how and how much they cover the behind the scenes of a movie. And going back to my sort of like, let's pretend this is alien, you know, kind of uh, MO, um, the studio didn't necessarily feel that way exactly. Uh, you know, it's like, I think they wanted to cover it, but it wasn't sort of like, let's cover every day, let's cover every little nook and cranny of this thing. So I shot all that stuff myself, kind of like just on my own, um, on my own dime. I wasn't getting paid. I just, I just shot and shot and shot. Whenever I got the call, like, hey, there's something interesting going on today. There's a meeting with Carlos Huante or, you know, any, any of the other team um neville page um you know come down so i, I would go down and I'd shoot meetings or arthur max and the art department the conceptual artists would have a show and tell for ripley so i'd come down for that so basically whenever i got the word uh, uh that something was going on i'd come down and shoot and fortunately at the time i lived like you know like a little over half an hour away from the office so i could just come from home pick up my camera drive down and start shooting so um, so for the, let's call it the pre pre-production phase of LA. I mean, that was just me just kind of like on a whim, just going down and shooting whatever it felt like there was something worth covering. Um, and it wasn't until the film got greenlit, but then, and that, it makes sense totally like the studio is waiting for the film to be official before they start documenting. Once that got greenlit, then it became much more official. And then, you know, I was compensated retroactively and then, you know, everything got settled, but it was just like, it was kind of like a leap of faith for that first year to just 
capture because I, I told everybody if we lose it, we're never getting it again. Like this is all stuff that's going to happen once and it's never going to happen again. Let's just cover it and bank it. So that's what I did. Um, just a quick question. How many of those early pre-pre-production meetings with Arthur Max, et cetera, involved red wine? <laughs> I, I mean, wine, yeah, no, wine was, was a recurring element in many of the meetings, uh, you know. It, it just it's just you know it's a civilized way to have a meeting i just I, it's so yeah. it's so civilized it's just funny because you don't know what's going on for the first half hour of your film but every single time they're interviewing like every, every single time you see anybody from the art department basically they're all drinking wine and then eventually you find out it's because really you would know Ridley scott was coming right because there would be a cart of wine that would roll into the room before he would i just like that's such one of those details that i'm so glad you were there to document it because that's something mm-hmm. that you know it's hard to conceptualize and then you kind of see it actually happening and it's movie history kind of unfolding you know yeah, no, I mean, that was certainly a, a side of it that was very pleasant. And uh, and it just made everybody feel good. It felt like, you know, it, it felt like it wasn't work. It was like, you know, they were artists creating, you know, these worlds. And it had nothing to do with clocking in, clocking out, delivering what you have to deliver. It was just like, let's let's enjoy this process. And that, that's what was fun for me to, to shoot that stuff was to capture the creative process and how they had, you know, more than a... Um, professional investment in it they had a personal investment in it, and they were having you know they were having a pleasurable time and that i think uh you know really goes a long way in making for a happy crew and then you know good work out of that hopefully was there ever a point for you uh well not let me rephrase that uh do you try and stay even we all have opinions about everything in terms of being an artist yourself were there was there a time where you're like i unsure about where it was going thematically or where you weren't even worried about it. You're like, I'm here to document. I'm here to see where this is going um, as, as a piece of cinema history and that's it. Or were, was there, and not, not that I want to discuss it per se, but I'm curious if you, during your, your, all the time that you spent on the show, were there times where you're like, Oh, I don't, this, this doesn't add up to me. Not to say that you were judging it or prejudging it or anything like that, but were you trying to stay as neutral as possible? Oh no, I was. I was judging everything. I was, I was judging, nitpicking, <laughs> you know, and you know, geeking out over everything. So, um, and you know, Arthur Max, you know, to his credit, allowed me a lot of leeway in terms of like articulating my. Thoughts uh, to him, um, and, I, and I was very careful. I was never like, you know, this sucks. I was always very much. I'd ask, as, I'd ask questions, is what I would do. You know, like for instance, I'll never forget the one of the earliest days. I was in the uh, the, the war room at, at you know at Scott Free. Actually, it was next door at RSA or this other company, but they had all the conceptual art all over the walls. They had you know really storyboards. They had just beautiful you know digital paintings of, of the scenes. But there was this whole section of the wall that was all these kind of like uh, Michelangelo, David, you know, kind of like, you know, muscular, nude men. And I'm like, what's this got to do with Alien? And, and Arthur said, oh, those are, those are the engineers. And I said, wait, you mean the space jockeys? He's like, yeah, that's what's under the suit. And and I had a little micro meltdown when I heard that. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> It'd be the worst thing ever, you know. Um, but I, I mean, but then you learn how it fits and how it fits in the Ridley's vision and how it fits in the story. And you, you learn that there are much bigger themes at, at work and that basically it's just a, uh, you know, it's just a different approach than I think a lot of people um, anticipated, which of course, if you tell that to someone like Ridley, um, he probably enjoys that because he doesn't want to give you the same old, same old. He doesn't want to give you what you're expecting. He wants to surprise you. So, um, so a lot of times, like the alien purist in me, you know, kind of like the uh, I'm like a, like a, a monk, like an alien monk, basically, who's like very <laughs> to, to, to the letter of what the gospel is supposed to be. 
and I'd see that stuff, and I'd be like, no, this is not right. This is gonna, this is not gonna work. But I would bite my tongue, and I would shoot it, and I would get everyone's. I try to get everyone's take on it. Like how, how is it gonna work? It's like I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you. I don't think it's gonna work. I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna ask you how is it gonna work, and they, they would tell me, you know. And and over time, you you get acclimated to it, and you realize, oh, they've they've got a take on it, and it's a different take. And um, and it, and who knows? Maybe it's brilliant, and maybe we'll find out it's going to be a really great thing. But no, I, I had many moments where I was sort of like, "Wow, that is not what I was expecting from the space jockey world in terms of like their civilization or what their goals were, um, what the plan was with the derelict ship in the first film, like with all those eggs." You know, we always kind of assumed those that was like a, a payload of some kind of like you know weaponry to be used on some kind of enemy. Um, we just didn't know what, you know, so all those things, you know, you realize that you spend, you know, many, many years as a kid and as a fan and then as a, as a you know, adult nerd thinking about this stuff and you, you have your own vision of it. But then you realize the guy who, who made the original film has a completely different point of view and you just have to kind of give yourself over to that because he's the one making the movie. You know, he's the one in the position to make the movie and, and give him a chance. You know, I think he's earned it. I think he's earned the chance to, uh, you know, roll the dice and come up with some new ideas and kind of screw with things a bit. And, uh, and there you go. You know, like that was that's kind of the answer to the question is like, yes, I questioned a lot of it. I doubted a lot of it, but I never once doubted the talent that was going into it and that it had, you know, it had a point. And it was just sort of like, is it a point that is going to resonate when the film is all together in one final, you know, experience? I feel like it's hard it's hard to look back and remember exactly how audacious that felt when it came out and how confusing from a marketing angle it was because there was this whole phase where we were like is this not an alien film like or, or is it is it still going to be an alien film like wh- where's the creature there's the shot of the deacon in the, tra- in the trailer and we we're like what the hell is that all about and and it's it's amazing that for like a, a, a film with that kind of budget and that kind of a lineage to come out into that kind of a of a you know mystery uh, is I think kind of extraordinary and it's interesting something else in, in your film that I, I remember um, is that the art department a lot of the members of the art department were very candid in saying that they hated the, the ideas for a while and they kind of had to eventually acclimate to it like they had to sort of come around with the engineers they had to come around with this idea that it was this sort of parallel pre-storyline that was uh, tangentially related to what they thought they were signing up for um, and it sounds like your your journey in this pre-pre-production phase was similar in that it kind of took you a while to kind of get used to it. I think for, for me as a fan, uh, it's taken me a very long time to get you because, 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 you know, we saw it without having the benefit of this sort of like this, you know, acclimation time. And so uh, I think for a lot of us, when we saw it, we were kind of left wondering, like, what was what was going on? And if this was, you know, heretical, if us alien monks were going to be, you know, shunned from the from the monastery or something. Um, and it's it's funny, the journey of Prometheus post release has been one where there's been a gradual, gradual sort of, uh, you know, uh, movement of people appreciating it for what it is and, and not necessarily for what it's not. And it's been really great to behold. But I'm not surprised to hear you say that that in those early days there was sort of confusion about the direction that it was taking. And I guess what, what I'm wondering about, you know, is that and Ridley Scott says this also in your film. He says that you know the space jockey was the key for him. That that was always kind of what he wanted to come back around to again. And that if he was going to do an alien film, that was what he was going to focus on. And you know, we see that of course with Covenant, post Covenant. You know, he had the quote about the beast being cooked in Variety. Then everybody got kind of in an uproar about that. It seems like for for Ridley the the 
key to this thing when he went back into it was exploring the journey that that jockey had and what that jockey represented. And I guess it, just given your you know relationship with him and uh, having known kind of where his heart is on some of this creative stuff, what do you think it is about that storyline that stuck with him for all of those intervening decades? What do you, what do you think attracted him to that idea? Well, because that scene in the original Alien is just so powerful. It's such a, a strong visual and a strong mystery that, um, I mean, again, I remember as a kid seeing that opening night in Hollywood. I was just like so floored because I felt like I was actually watching some imagery that was being beamed to us from the actual location somewhere, you know, across the galaxy. I, you know, it was just such a uh, profoundly like like it was almost like a, a living dream seeing that the derelict ship and the, and the chair and the, the, the you know the fossilized space jockey within and it just it was so ancient and so unlike anything we were seeing in science fiction at that time um so i think that that one scene because it's so powerful and, and it asks such a big question is like where did the alien come from what what happened to the jockey you know basically what was that story you know how did the, how did the ship crash how did the space jockey, that space jockey, get you know implanted with with a, a chest burster? Um, what was the origin of that chest burster? Obviously, it's all the eggs. But now, you know, where did that original alien go? It's like, there's so many questions, and that one little whatever it is, like seven or ten minute chunk of the movie that you realize, oh, there's a whole of the movie there if you want it, you know. And, and I think it was just such a powerful moment that, by the way, as you as you guys know, it was like that was an an idea scene that was kind of on and off the table a lot when they were making the original film. Like, you know, they didn't have the money to do it. There's going to be this huge, like, pit stop along the way. Was it necessary? And there's all these questions about should that scene even happen or not? You know, so the fact that Ridley got it made and it was so incredibly well done and it had so much, you know, it's just so potent for something else or for at least further conversation. So I think that was just the obvious way to go. And so many other people brought it up. It wasn't just him. I mean, everybody was like, I want to know more about the space jockey. And, you know, as you know, like some of the comics, they sort of like, you know, showed their version of the space jockey alive, like, or, or the species anyway. And, um, you know, I'm not sure anyone really nailed it, but I, I, I do think there's this sort of imagined space jockey franchise out there somewhere that really could be a rich a really rich you know uh universe it's just that now between prometheus and covenant i think well i think that that's kind of now been done although i mean i'm sure you guys have talked about this a lot but i think in my own head canon the engineers are a mid-tier like species and there actually is one above them that is like the you know 14 foot tall space jockey versus the eight foot tall engineer and those are the gods to these gods basically so it's like that they're emulating the the taller space jockeys which is why the original space jockey design of the chair and all that the, the, the giger the hand done giger art is a bit different than what's in prometheus which is a little bit more mechanical and kind of like i don't know designy so um you know again it's it's kind of futile to, to talk about these things but i think it's fun to imagine you know maybe there's something else out there beyond the engineer as we know it in prometheus and covenant and there's an original kind of like you know primitive but more powerful space jockey out there i feel like i just really nerded out uh on you guys no no it, we love this shit and <laughs> no, i have to say I love in, in covenant in, in covenant one of my one of the things i love in covenant is in the sequence where we actually see the engineers in covenant there it's it's very clearly like a different species or a different cast right they're wearing almost like peasant clothes like medieval peasant clothes they're like their their features look very different i think it's clear that there's this whole implied other universe of, of you know these sort of casts of species out there and there's a great moment in your film also charles where i don't remember who's who he's talking to but Ridley is doing some Ridley grams on a table and he's in his kind of like work mode you know where he's kind of like sitting up straight and sort of like barking you know as he's kind of talking about ideas 
and he's and, he, and Bradley says to whoever is sort of questioning him, he's like, he's like, well, who do you think made them? And the other person's like, I don't know. And he's like, God. And he just kind of keeps drawing, you know. And it's this moment where he just he was like, it's so obvious, like like they, they didn't they didn't make everything. Like there's something above them too. I think that was totally in Ridley's head going into this thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Prometheus was the first science fiction film Ridley Scott had directed since Blade Runner. And of course, in fandom, we all know this. We all know that the the father of sci-fi, really the man who put his stamp on science fiction and had it was never the same since, was coming back to genre he had to redefine. Um, did any of that energy or hey, we're discussing coming back to science fiction. Was it ever something that he himself, in conversations during pre-production or production, that he would self, he himself would like verbally recognize, like, well, this has been a long time. Did he ever feel like, oh, I'm back? Like, did it fit so well with him? It, it was something that was seemed so natural for him with Blade Runner, with Alien, um, having him back there. And I remember like seeing. Uh, I remember there were set leaks. There was a one set leak of the, the I think it was the, the leg of the Prometheus, and it looked a lot like the leg in the Nostromo. You saw the, the striping and everything, and people were like geeking out, like, oh my God, it looks like the Nostromo. It looks amazing. Was there ever any sense for Ridley Scott himself where he felt like, how? what am I trying to say? Is he that he was giving, he realized the gravity of his return to science fiction? Uh, I never, I never heard it uttered from you know him directly. Uh, I never once heard him say, "Holy shit, isn't it great that I'm coming back and doing science fiction?" You know, I, I don't, I know, I don't think I ever caught that vibe from him. Like, you know, self-aware that of the mark he had left because I think, I think he's well aware of that. Um, but I, um, it was, I mean, in pretty much every every film, every project I, you know, I worked on with him and I documented, I really felt like he was all about the problem solving, the logistics. Um, what, what's, what, what do I have to figure out today? What problem do I have to solve now? And how do I do it in the most creative way I can? But in his mind, you know, he's made so many movies and so many commercials and so many things that I think he's just, he's just running on his own kind of, you know, momentum and you either keep up or you don't. And I, and I feel like that is kind of like the only, um, the only thing you have to do as a member of the crew is to just you know give him great ideas that he can then play with and you bounce it back and forth and then he'll come in and he'll draw some things and you know but all you have to do is just kind of stay on the same page with him in terms of you know the story and what the needs of the story are and then what looks cool basically you know um i I don't think there was any sort of sense of like the history or the the, in the moment of him returning um coming from him i mean it may be internally he did but i never heard it Members of the crew, different story. Like members of the crew were all about like, oh yeah, this is the big return. We've been waiting for this for thirty years. Um, you know, I mean, just I, everyone I talked to had that that sense of like, we, we can't believe he's actually finally coming back. So um, that that was the only time you ever heard that that sense of like importance of it. Um, but uh, you know, there was a lot of people, including myself. We we compared it at the time to like you know, in a way, it was like George Lucas coming back with Phantom Menace because you know he hadn't been done Star Wars for many years, and now he was coming back, and people were so thrilled to have him back in the, you know in Star Wars that they just kind of went with it. You know, they didn't really question what he was coming up with. They didn't say, "You sure you want to do Jar Jar?" You know, it's like none of that stuff. You know, and 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 it was very similar with Prometheus. It was kind of like, okay, let him. You know, he's earned it. Let him go do what he wants. Let him play and come up with things and world build and all that 
And um, and most of the time, it looked really interesting. It looked really cool. And it was just sort of like, how is this all going to work? I mean, there was one moment when um, on set, I remember specifically those little um, those little scanner orbs, right? They throw up and they start mapping the, the inside of the uh, juggernaut. The pumps. Yeah. Now, and, yeah. And, and, and in person, they didn't look super convincing. I mean, they were, they were cool, but they just looked kind of like silver balls you'd, you know, throw, throw to your pet to, to play with. But um, they didn't seem super convincing as high tech. And um, and I mentioned it to Ridley, I said, so is that how they're going to look? And he goes, just, just you wait, you, you'll see, you'll see. And then sure enough, I just, when I when I saw the first cut of the film, I'm like, oh, those are super cool. Now now I now I get that there's going to be all this, you know, kind of like scanning and laser light show and thing like things like that. So that's why you kind of just go with it and you say, look, he's got it in his head, he's figuring it out. You know, there's no reason to question or bring anything up. Just let him do it. And um, and then you get what you get, you know. And um, that's a whole different conversation in terms of like what the final result is. But in the making of it, you just you know he's in charge and you just follow along for the ride. Yeah, you answered certainly answered my question in terms of uh, how I perceive Ridley Scott. Certainly within the last probably fifteen years, whereas he's a man who is. This is the project I'm working on. We have a set of circumstances. These are the challenges. Uh, I've got three other projects lined up after this. Let's get through this. And um, not that I was expecting him to be like, oh, I'm back in science fiction. Well, let's talk about this. But more, uh, I and uh, you know, I, I would probably um, call it humility that he's like, you know, I'm, I'm here. You know, this is something that I have done before. I am back again. It was 30 years to the to the year that he had done Blade Runner, and for many of us, it was a reverent. It was a, a reverent moment uh, or a reverential moment. Um, but I'm curious to to use that as a pivot point. I his, was he ever interested? Not that he would be disinterested, but like when there was leaks when. Because there's tons of leaks from Prometheus. I remember when a bunch of stuff dropped about what fans were saying. Did he ever give that attention? Like, oh, interesting. This is what, or he's like, okay, interesting. We have a job to do. No, I, I never once heard him uh, fret about the fans at all or the the, the leaks. Even though I got I got to be honest, I mean, there weren't that many leaks. To be honest, it was I, I was there in the. Uh, it was I shared an office with Stacy Mann, the publicist, and Carrie Brown, the still photographer, and the three of us. We were like the leak patrol of like you know looking at all the websites looking at all the message boards saying hey did you see this guy with the alien harvest script and and you know all that whole like ridiculous you know thing that happened <laughs> um yep. it was like we we were monitoring everything and and i gotta say virtually nothing got out in those early days of shooting maybe like later you know closer to when the film was been editing and then coming out for release but we were shocked there actually wasn't more in terms of leaks like there because there were people on site with cameras and there were people you know doing their job and you know whatever and i was shooting like crazy every day and uh, and ness white who also worked with me on camera she was shooting all the time so it's like we had terabytes upon terabytes of footage that easily could have like leaked out had we not been safe about it but we were like really secure and uh, and everyone in the crew, you know, they want to still be employed and they want to work on future projects, so they're not leaking anything. And on top of that, I think everyone felt the sense of responsibility and duty to Ridley because, like, this was a world he was figuring out, he was building, he was painting with with you know sound and light and color and everything, and um, everyone was very respectful about that. So, but like I said, in our little room there, the three of us, we were like hawks, and we were just like we were reading message board conversations and theories and, and and again the alien harvest script was endlessly amusing for us because when we started seeing you know bits of the script come out and we we're like where are they getting this it's like not even remotely close <laughs> but but then you know guys on the, on the boards are like 
taking it as gospel. Like, oh, this is, this must be the real script because who who in their right mind would go write a full feature script that was knowingly fake and put that out on the internet, thinking that oh, are they, they going to get discovered? But when everyone knows that John Spates is doing it, then then Dan Lindelof is doing it. So it was very amusing to like track those those uh, early days of the reaction online. Um, cause there was a lot of it. There's a lot of reaction, a lot of discussion. Like that stuff was very active, you know, but, um, in terms of the leaks and stuff, I don't remember there being many leaks at all, to be honest. What do you remember in terms of what you were seeing on message boards and fan forums and things back then? Like, like what, what, what were the, other than, you know, like supposed leaks of scripts and stuff like that? Like, like what, what were the, what, what were people talking about? Like, what was the, what was the atmosphere like? My, my favorite was, um, it was on the IMDb boards and this guy claimed he went to the set and that there was a there was this amazing mind blowing alien set that was three blocks high, and I and I and I thought about that for a second. I thought three blocks high. That's that's what like that's like three hundred feet. I mean that's I mean I, I, I assume I think blocks are about a hundred feet if I'm not mistaken. So in any case, that's impossibly high for a set to be like that tall because not only building it would be very difficult, but you would see the set from all the surrounding neighborhoods and everything yeah you can't you can't hide that shit yeah you can't hide that so i like that type of stuff was hilarious because they were very serious like oh my my friend's cousin's uncle is a security guard who knows the catering person blah blah blah. and they would like they would write this elaborate story about how they got onto the set and how they saw this and they spoke with ridley they shook his hand whatever and um yeah so that that type of stuff was amazing the people who are inventing their uh, their experiences because they were they, again so little was getting out they had to kind of imagine it it was almost like their brains were in hyperdrive and they had to like imagine what was happening at pinewood studios under this like you know a shroud of secrecy so um yeah that stuff was fun to read just and just all the debates back and forth of if, if is it real is it not real is it really happening you know sigourney coming back for a cameo i mean just you know ridiculous things like that was uh, was always amusing to, to follow i remember specifically uh there the people someone posted there's these 12 foot high aliens that you know that were seen on set and blah 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 blah. of course no one knows what's happening so it's probably as plausible as any other rumor going around so the idea that you have you know 12 foot high xenomorphs in an alien movie people are like what the you know i I thought it was at the same time that's the most exciting time uh, for a film is the buildup. You don't know what's happening. You're not. We're not seeing anything. There was a couple of leaks. The one being the 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 um, the big leg of the Prometheus. But other than that, it was really really exciting to uh, be speculating on the new Ridley Scott Alien film. I mean, I don't think there was a more fun time in fandom uh, in terms of Alien fandom where you have the father of this series coming back. But it was. Yeah, I, I remember the the Harvest script, which I think is funny because it has the term Blue Harvest, which of course is Star Wars. That was the 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 name that they gave it to throw everyone off. And here's this alien script sharing, like, come on, don't you think that there's something wrong there? But I don't even remember what that script was about. But uh, it it was definitely well, a lot of fun. I I actually while while I was out there, I I and I very meticulously recreated the Blue Harvest logo to say Alien Harvest. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't think it said horror beyond imagination, but I came up with some of the tagline beneath it. But it was like literally the Blue Harvest logo, just with alien, and I made it green. And I was going to make it into shirts, but I just, you know, didn't quite have the time to get that. I, was, I spent like, you know, fifteen minutes, like, oh, we got to make alien harvest shirts. No, we just never quite pulled it off. But almost. I would, I would, I would pay so much money for an alien harvest shirt. I have to, <laughs> if you ever decide to go back into production on that, yeah. <laughs> sign me up. But it was such, a, it was such I, an I, I amazing time. Somewhere. It was such an yeah. amazing time to be a fan because it because it was it, it was 
It was so monumental that it was actually happening, and it was so confusing about what was actually going on, and there were so many conflicting things getting bandied about that by the time I went, you know, opening weekend to it, I, I really truly had no clue what I was going to get. Um, and and I, that's that's just I feel like it was one of the last major releases that could be like that because the because Web 2.0 and smartphones were in a place that was just less developed enough that you could kind of not have everything spoiled. You know what I mean? Like, people were on social media, obviously. People had access to smart devices and shit. But, like, but I feel like now, like, we're just, there's just such an incredible, uh, you know, density of information that accompanies every single release. And you have to, like, try so hard to avoid finding things out. But, but, in, in you know, the, the halcyon days of 2011, 2012, like, you could kind of a little bit talk about rumors and you could sort of talk about you know myths and you could make up stories and people couldn't necessarily verify them or disprove them and you could kind of be like maybe there are 12 foot aliens i don't know maybe that was you know the nostromo touching back down on this planetoid who right um and i and i prometheus has a special place in my heart uh for that reason because it was sort of it was like the last sort of um like almost like innocent major release of a film and a franchise that i care about as much as i do this one you know it was a different time Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right. I think there was it was a there was a fun build up to Prometheus. Like regardless of what you thought of the film, the this the the joy of of, of the mystery of it, and and I think just the uh, you know the debating what it's going to be about and is it going to be any good. And the first trailer comes out, and people are like wow, that looks that looks pretty cool. And they brought back the the sounds from the original Alien teaser trailer to make it seem like it's the same thing. You know, all that was great. Like that was a lot of fun. I think Fox did a really decent job of uh, building the hype and really great job marketing it. So I, I think. That was that was definitely a fun ride for sure. That our first initial trailer was one of the best experiences I'd had in the theater. I mean, again, because they brought back the siren and it just, I, you know, you're sitting there thinking, "What the fuck are they about to drop on us?" And uh, I, I think that there were quotes at that point from Ridley Scott saying that the the little squid birthing scene was really terrifying. So of course that's being built up to it was, it was, it was just, again, that's as, as a fan, as uh, someone who's part of fandom and fan communities, the buildup is, the, is the, some of the best parts of uh, f- being a film goer. I had a question though, in terms of um, the script. So we're talking about John space, original script, and then Damon Lindelof was, was brought in later on. From your experience, maybe not just with Ridley Scott, but just in general, was this something that was was that was going to happen? And I know that there was discussion. Ridley Scott saying, "Oh, it's too alien. I want to sort of uh, pull a lot of that stuff out of there." But a lot of the stuff is still in there. It just looks a little bit different. Um, how it seemed like, at least how it was written, that was wholly important to Ridley Scott to not directly correlate it to Alien. Well, I think there was another another dimension to the whole thing in terms of like going from John's early scripts to Damon's later scripts. And that was what would get the script greenlit by the studio? What would make the studio feel confident that they were going to get a movie um, that would be successful? Um, You know, not only be, you know, sort of paying tribute and maintain the same level of quality as the original Alien film, but also just something they can sell and they can make money off of and be successful. So um, if you read John's script... You know, it's 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 very heady. It's very science fictiony. It's very alien. It's very you know, it's it's kind of like what you'd expect from an alien script. Um, but you have to imagine people at the studio who maybe aren't as invested in the alien universe or even science fiction um, 
and and I'm by the way, I'm not saying that there are these people. I'm just saying imagine that, that there are these people um, who maybe need to understand what it's going to play like with an audience on a Friday night. And that's when Damon kind of comes in, and he and I don't know if you read his draft, but his draft is almost like pitching the script directly to you, the reader, and it's very like. And then this happens, and it's cool, cool, and it's this, and it's that. And don't get me wrong, it's like it's like very. Uh, very competently written, but it's fun to read. So it's, it's a very fun read. Whereas John's script is more of like a kind of a holy document. Like this is the script, and this is going to be for the movie. And it's going to be very heady and deep, and it's going to have themes, and it's going to be very serious. And and I think Damon's script is takes that, but then makes it a little bit more fun. Puts a little more, you know, puts a little sugar uh, on the on the vinegar or whatever, if you want to put it that way. Terrible analogy. That but, sounds um, that sounds they, disgusting. It's, it's disgusting. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, you know, but you know what I mean? It's like basically <laughs> he just kind of like, I think, smoothed it out a bit for people that want to just understand what the movie is going to be like as an entertainment. And and I, and I when I read Damon's draft, I thought, wow, this is, I mean, it actually really impacted the way I write, to be honest, because I felt his writing was so personable and charming in a way that was just like, connected with the reader in a way that really brought them into the film. Um, so in a way, it's kind of like the difference between, here's another bad analogy, I'm sure, but, you know, it's like John is kind of like a professor lecturing to a class and Damon's more of an entertainer and he's like telling jokes. And it's like, that's kind of like the really rough difference, I think, between the scripts. Um, but they're, I think they're both really smart. I think they both have really great ideas. And it's just like, which one was going to get the green light? And I think Damon's was the one that just finally got it there. Um, I I, uh, I, I want to talk about John Spates just for a moment because I feel like he brought so much to this film from an ideas perspective. His script is so literate and it's so extraordinary, I think. And he just comes across, like, you know, in your film especially, he just, it just seems like just so intelligent, so full of ideas and energy and enthusiasm. And I could, because he's somebody that we don't have as much of a window to, like, we just don't see very much from him or hear very much from him. Can you give us more kind of insights into just what he was like, you know, as a collaborator, what he was like with Ridley, and sort of like how this, as a script was coming together, uh, like, what it, what it was like in that time? But first, before... Just really quickly, I, I'm curious though. Before, as we go into this part of the conversation, was John Spates picked by someone to say, "Please write us an alien script," or had he already written this himself and said, "I, I have an idea for an alien film"? Uh, well, no. And in fact, John says it in his own words. If you if you watch Furious Gods, he basically says he was going in for a general meeting, just talking about other projects and other things, and just you know, kind of like getting to know the people of Scott Free and. Um, they kind of mentioned, oh, yeah, well, we're, we're talking about doing Alien. And uh, and then he being, you know, really sharp and uh, on the ball and realizing there's an opportunity right there to jump in and say, hey, I've got an Alien script, even if he didn't. Um, he, you know, probably vamped his way through a pretty intelligent conversation about what it could have been, what a new movie could be like. And then he, like, as he says in the documentary, he went off and wrote like a couple pages um, which, you know, you're not supposed to do without a contract or without the agents being involved and all that. But he did it. He wrote like a little thing and they seemed to like it enough to bring him on officially. So that's kind of how he got involved. It was just based on the notion of, yeah, maybe Alien. And then he said, oh, I, I can do an Alien movie. And then he did. And that's kind of, I think, how he found the opportunity to work on those early drafts. Without having written a feature uh, greenlit screenplay before, right? 
Well, he was he was a bit of a hot writer back then because he had some scripts that were really like everyone's reading them and they thought, wow, this guy's gonna you know he's gonna break soon. Um, it was, but yeah, you're right. It's like they hadn't made any of them yet yet, which is I think I know a lot of friends who are writers who have written amazing scripts and have had huge meetings and they've even gotten like paid decent money and none, nothing's been made yet. Nothing's been filmed yet because it just, it just hasn't, you know, and there's shelves filled with these beautiful scripts that may never get made, but studio has to jump on it because then someone else might get it, you know? So they have to kind of collect these scripts and then find the right moment and the right lineup of talent and schedule and everything else. So that's just the movie business. Like that's just the way they all are. But, um, yeah, in this case, it was just kind of like um, John was he was a very up and coming writer, very like people had their eye on him. And uh, and he had this opportunity that he kind of just jumped into and he took advantage of. And uh, boom, that was like his first uh, his first project that film. But his but but the, the engineers aspect to it, that that was him, right? That's his term. You know, to be perfectly honest, I, I can't say that's 100 percent his term or Ridley's term um, who who coined that. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know haze going back that far thinking about who said what and whose idea it was what because you know generally speaking if, if it's um if it's if it's just an idea that everyone agrees to it's rare that they say oh that was john's idea or that was ridley's idea it was just, it's the idea you know so i don't perfectly remember exactly who, who coined engineer or the juggernaut or any of the other sort of new prometheus terms that are basically reflections of what was in alien but I guess, so the reason I'm asking, and we mentioned this before we started recording, of all of the Alien films, Prometheus is the one that I have the most kind of shoddy knowledge on, especially in this part of it, the, the pre-production, the pre-pre-production. So I, I truly don't know, for example, like when when Spates wrote this script, this or at least the spec script treatment that he did that, that eventually got you know his foot in the door, um, that was basically this engineer's story, correct? And then Ridley was not a part of it yet no it was it, it began with with scott free and ridley you know, so he approached fox like, and said okay i'm ready to start doing this no, no so what happened like as i said so basically john was in for a meeting a general meeting had nothing to do with prometheus or anything just to talk about projects right right, right, right. and it was just kind of casually mentioned to him that hey there might be an alien movie in, in the pipeline and that's when he t- saw an opportunity jumped in with an idea and they liked the idea, and then they took it to Fox, and Fox said, "Sure," and like, "Let's develop it." So they developed it, and that's when he started writing, you know, outlines and the treatments and the scripts and so on and so forth. So it was it wasn't like he did anything on his own um, necessarily, uh, other than write that first couple pages. But again, that was with the knowledge that Scott Free had met with him. Yeah, said, so that was Scott gonna, Free. Gonna I was thinking that was Fox. It was Scott Free that had met with him at first for just a general yeah. stories meeting, and that was where they came yeah. from. So, but in that in that stories meeting, that that general session that they had, were they talking about engineers are returning to the space jockey? Were they talking about like that was the direction they were considering, or was this just John come, coming it, up with this? No, I I believe, uh, yeah, no, I think as John says in the documentary that they said that they're going to go back in time and go back to earlier, you know, and and the space jockey kind of of it all, basically. So um, I wasn't there. I was in the room, so I don't know specifically how detailed they got about space jockeys and all that. But um, they, they definitely said that going back to sort of the source of this was where they wanted to go. So he probably took it from there. Got it. Got it. In reference to an earlier part of an earlier discussion, what I do love about Ridley Scott, uh, at least from what I could tell, is 
we all remember when the Star Wars prequels were coming out. In one prequel, The Phantom Menace came out. Tons of backlash, tons of chatter, and I hate this, I don't like this. Um, take it for what it is. We all have opinions about it. But George Lucas would, and his team would sort of make these public, oh, yeah, we're going to make it better, we're having another writer. Whereas Ridley Scott never has never publicly, like, he's always been who he is. And he, this is the film that he wants to make. He, I've never seen him, at least publicly, say, oh, well, yeah, I think maybe the fans were right. But we've seen this come from the Lucasfilm camp uh, before Lucasfilm became Disney Lucasfilm. And them sort of retooling scripts or stories or dialogue. But Ridley Scott never did this. He's he, he's always stayed true to his original vision, whether you agree with it or not, whether it's successful or not. And I really applaud him for that. I think that uh, that's that's hard to, to do, especially, I mean, Prometheus made a lot of money. I, and in comparison to Covenant, it made like, a, I think, $126 million stateside and then whatever, like $400 million total worldwide. It pulled in a good chunk of money um, and the follow up didn't. And I remember uh, an interview with Ridley Scott after Covenant had released and he was like, well, this was my opinion about Prometheus. I thought we should push away from Alien and and blah, 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 blah. And then he said, so, you know, Covenant wasn't very successful, and I was right all along. Um, and you can take that as hubris, or you can take that as as however you want, but the reality is he had a vision, and he stuck with it, and he didn't agree. You can sort of feel it with Covenant that it, he didn't want to do certain things, but he felt like from studio pressure that he had to, um, and it was what it was, but I really respect from him, or respect in him, that he hasn't pander um because a lot of other you know you, you even see the star wars sequels right now they're sort of a mess because there's so much oh my god we made a man oh my god we're they don't like it anymore what do we do how do we get him back what do we have to do let's do this let's do that but really scott has never done that and uh I, whether that's a positive or a negative that's something that i really respect in him yeah i don't i don't know if he would even know how to do that frankly I don't, you know in terms of like take notes from fans or for the fan reaction or whatever. I mean, I really think he has a strong vision of his own. He doesn't really need that kind of feedback. I mean, I feel like there are times where I would, I, I would say things and he would kind of blow it off because he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're you're a nerd. I'm not going to listen to you. you know, so <laughs> I, kind of, I got that every now and then, you know. Um, I, I remember... <laughs> I remember after uh, it was like it was pretty much the final cut of Prometheus. I had seen it like five times by that point, but he had a screen on the Fox lot that I got invited to go see, and it was maybe like twenty people in the theater. And uh, and then afterwards, he was kind of waiting for me to, to give my opinion, but he the first thing he said was, "I know, I know, you want everything back in the movie, like all the deleted scenes. You want everything back in the movie because he just assumed that's what I like because I always want to collect the deleted scenes for the disc." And it's like, no, I, I you know deleted scenes are cut for a reason. I don't need everything back in the movie there were two scenes i wish that were back in the movie but um but on the whole it was sort of like that's that's the movie you wanted to make and then and you made it and you know he seemed to then kind of like for just maybe like five seconds like consider what i was saying but then i think i, I still got filed away into uh the, the fanboy camp and the, therefore the nerd rep yeah yeah so um but yeah, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna ask the two scenes that i thought that should go back in i thought that um the intermediate uh, worm basically between the little worm and the uh, the uh, what was it called the hammerpede um, the hammerpede yeah um, there was that intermediate length creature that they find and they put into a jar that was cut out in the deleted scenes on the disc but I thought that would be helpful to explain the uh, the excitement 
um, that then comes with the hammer peed scene to like go and reach out and touch it. Um, because people are like, why would you touch with basically a space cobra hissing at you? It's like, why would you touch that? And I thought that that intermediate scene kind of conveyed the, the, the sense of the, the the joy of discovery, like these guys were experiencing, like this, these are the first sort of alien life forms they're seeing, especially, you know, face to face like this. And uh, so that, that'd be helpful to smooth that bit out because the the hammer peat scene was a bit of a rough lead up to, oh, let's touch that thing. Um, and then the other one is is the final fight between um, the engineer and Shaw uh, in the in the escape vessel. Um, I thought that Which was is amazing, amazing, amazing it's scene. Freaking it's awesome! It's so scary. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's scary. It's beautifully shot and edited, and it's just really well put together. And you know, in the cut as it is now, Shaw just hears David say he's coming, and then boom, door opens. He's there. She opens the door. You know, the troglodyte or whatever grabs him, and you know, I, f- I forgot the name of the creatures. By the way, it's really bad. <laughs> the troglodyte. Um, oh, I, I love it. troglodyte works too. Troglodyte, though, right? troglodyte works too. <laughs> it's a cave, cave dwelling, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I like what, that. What was, it, what was it called? It was the what was the the trilobite. The, like, the trilobite. That's yeah. right. The trilobite. The trilobite um, and the hammer feed. So, yeah. So, but but that ha- it was over so quick, you didn't really get to enjoy the conflict of it. Whereas the other, the full fight scene, I thought was brilliant. So, um, you know that, and then also I think the um, the CG um, um, Fifield um, for when he gets all aliened out. Um, that was his name, right? Fifield. <laughs> I forget. The other yes, guy. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought the CG version was amazing, but they went with the original practical one, which again, normally I would say, yeah, that go with the practical, but that CG creature that was brilliant so um yeah just like little things like that and that's why we get to put them on the disc and people can still see and make their own choices you know on their decisions um but uh yeah anyway that was that i I don't think he listens to fan reaction that closely maybe if someone just kind of whispers it to enough enough to him maybe he'll take it on but i think he just has such a strong vision a strong point of view that he doesn't really need it from you know in his own process and I think the only the, the only part the confusion and I don't I mean obviously you weren't you didn't you weren't behind the scenes on Covenant and you can tell because a film a Ridley Scott film never feels finished unless there's a Charles de Zarica documentary and there isn't uh, so it doesn't feel completely finished. However, um, oh my God, I'm I'm losing my point. What was my point? Oh, uh, so there was criticism that. Alien or Prometheus wasn't alien enough, and people were like, fans wanted aliens back in the film. And in the fan community, we're like, what are they talking about? No one had that criticism. But for, for whatever reason, publicly and in, from coming from Fox, we're saying the fans wanted to see an alien in an alien film. And we were like, no, we don't. We just want to see a good movie. Um, and it was interesting how that translated because Ridley Scott was parroting that a little bit. And we were like, where is, where are people getting this from? And I don't know if you know that or whatever, but it was just, it was just, it was, it was curious. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the thought process about that at all, but I, I will say that going back to the star Wars analogy, it's sort of like, well, if, if Prometheus was Phantom Menace, then I think Covenant was definitely attack of the clones because attack of the clones felt like a really um, intense course correction from the, the craziness of Phantom Menace, like love or hate Phantom Menace. It's a pure George Lucas film, sure. like directly from his imagination, uncensored, unfiltered, uncut. That is George Lucas on the screen, Phantom Menace. Yeah. Attack of the Clones feels like a major, like, oops, we need to fix this now. And here's, you like Boba Fett? Here's Jango Fett. And you like this? You like that? It's like, it's very fan friendly. And, and then, of course, it's like, it's my least favorite of the Star Wars movies. 
Wars movies, Attack of the Clones. So I really look at that film like, wow, you really just kind of missed the point of the, the confusion, the criticism, criticism, even even the praise of Phantom Menace. You really kind of like thought that that was like it needed to be a Star Wars film with a lot of pew pew and a lot of like, you know, creatures and bounty hunters and action scenes. And it's like that, that kind of missed the boat as well. So with Covenant, which I've only seen once, I don't have the details of it in my brain, but I, but I remember I really enjoyed the second act, like the, uh, the David and Walter story basically because i've never seen that in alien film before like the opening the first act and the third act i have i feel like that's very sort of like a comfortable alien territory we've all seen we've seen them coming for a landing we've seen the first person get infected or whatever later we've seen the gadgets and the gizmos and fighting the alien like the one that got that, that snuck onto the ship i mean there's we've seen that before but the walter and david section which is bizarre but in really interesting ways in terms of like discussing you know the gods and their creations and 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 the relationship between that and just like i i thought that was fascinating so um i think i think that to me is like probably ridley's favorite part of them I, I don't know i haven't talked to him about it i don't know what his favorite part of the film is but i imagine given the, the attention to detail and how different it is i imagine he must really like that part of the film because it's so not like what we expect mm-hmm. in an alien film totally Um, I think just in, in closing out, we we, uh, we we announced just a few hours ago, actually, on on Facebook that we were going to have you on tonight. You know, I'm just asking if anybody had any questions. And the thread, like, exploded. So there's, I'm not going to be able to get to anywhere near all of these questions. But um, just a, a couple, if, if you wouldn't mind, um, that came up that seemed kind of interesting. One of them that a few people, uh, our dear friend Clara Feifei brought up, but also uh, Ulysses Garcia is uh, about Numi Rapaz. So they both said, is it Rapaz? Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Okay. I'm, 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 never, I'm never sure. I don't know why. So uh, so they both said something to the effect of, uh, I heard that Numi Rapaz was difficult to work with on Prometheus. Um, do you think that this could have affected her uh, being excised from Alien Covenant? What's your what's your insights into Numi Rapaz and her relationship with Prometheus? My memory of her was that she was delightful, that she was absolutely lovely. And um, I, I, I mean... In my dealings with her, she was fantastic. I mean, she let me get get away with all kinds of stuff that I think other actors would let, let me get away with. So, um, and I'm not saying that just to kiss ass. I really do feel like she was very wonderful. Um, there might have been stuff I was not privy to, but I was there quite a bit, and, and even in the early days. And um, she seemed game for anything. Like she was going to just try her hardest to make Ridley happy. And um, so, I, if that's true, it's news to me. Basically, I'll just say that. I all of my interactions with her were were fantastic. She was really great. Cool. And if she wasn't, and if, so she much... wasn't and if she wasn't, I would come up with a polite way to say it. So I'm, I'm really <laughs> genuinely, I'm very, very genuine when I say that she was wonderful. There are no air quotes for people who can't see Charles. The... <laughs> I wonder if some of that comes from the footage from the documentary where it shows Numi really upset mm-hmm. because of her helmet and she's in these scenes who knows how many times they've been filming them and she's pissed and so i don't know you know people they they see something they think oh why is this lady women shouldn't be angry she's angry was she you know hard to work with i don't know but i i 
that's the only thing that I could possibly think of. Well, put put yourself in her shoes. She's the star of this film. She's the star of a big Hollywood sequel movie. And um, so there's a lot of weight on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. And her, like the, the outburst you're talking about, which, by the way, we, we debated whether or not to put in the documentary. But for me, the reason was, and by the way, we got her people's permission. They, they approved putting that footage in. So it's like, it wasn't like we just snuck it in on her. She, they were, they approved mm-hmm. it. So, um, but I felt it showed her passion and her dedication and the fact that, you know, she wants to get it right. And it's frustrating when something that's not in her control holds her up from doing it right, which was like, you know, those are clunky helmets. They're not exactly precisely lockable like they should be, I guess, because, you know, they're movie props Um, and, you know, beautifully made and they look awesome. But there's, you know, there's some trouble with them because, and by the way, you're dealing with, you know, humans in the year 2010 or 11 dealing with things that are designed to look like they're, you know, a hundred years in the future or whatever. It's like, it's, it's, it's not things that people are used to. So anyway, long story short, I, I thought she was um, wonderful. Um, and I think she did a hell of a job and, um, you know, it might've just been, they didn't know where to take Shaw um, in an interesting direction for the, for the next film or the kind of the intermediate little short stories or whatever that they did. So I, 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 uh, I have nothing but good things to say about her legitimately. Interesting. Um, Something else that came up a couple of times, uh, and one of them is from our friend Mitch Mitchell. He said, uh, what ideas were thrown around on where the series would go? Were any of the ideas uh, from the concept art from Prometheus 2 already being discussed? And how do you feel about Covenant shifting gears on the elements set up in Prometheus? We've already talked a little bit about that with the whole Phantom Menace versus Attack of the Clones thing. But I guess, did you did you anticipate Covenant going in the direction that it did? Or did it seem like they were setting up something more directly corollary to Prometheus? Well, again, I, since I didn't, you know, document Covenant, I don't know exactly the trajectory it was going to, was, you know, intended to take or what they were thinking about. But um, I, I can only imagine they were trying to find a way to take the Prometheus storyline and kind of direct it in the direction of where Alien would begin. So it would almost be like it would end with the third movie, the third Prometheus movie would end with, you know, uh, Whale and Yutani sending the, you know, sending the Stromo out, like, or, like make a decision to like come up with special order 937 and, you know, commit Ash to the ship and get whoever the original science officer, like that type of stuff, probably how Prometheus three could have ended, but I don't know that I'm just, I'm just, you know, speculating. Um, but I felt like the, the little changes from Prometheus one, uh, going into covenant seemed to be angling towards a more alien, conclusion if that makes sense kind of like a conclusion that somehow ties in with the first film with the original alien again this is all i'm just speculating but like that's what i thought great and uh, the last one i'll get th- there really are so many good questions on this thread that i feel kind of criminal well, not getting through them all but well uh, okay we'll, we'll, do, uh, we'll do we'll do two more we'll do, we'll do two more okay, okay. uh one of them what, what, is... what hey what else what else are we doing <laughs> It's not like we're going anywhere in the house in quarantine. What the hell else are we doing? That's true. Um, so uh, one of the questions that came up was uh, was also from Clara. She asked uh, if you've ever tried to make the goo recipe that you filmed and uh, and just saying how much she enjoyed the in-depth <laughs> instructions on how to make it at home. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I have not tried to make it, but now with all this free time, let's, let's start doing a, a <laughs> Prometheus, what was it called? A, a, what was it called? Mon- molecular gastronomy? Is I think that Yeah, was molecular called. gastronomy, uh, yeah. Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll... we'll uh, We'll try that. That's a good oh idea. God, I love it. Uh, another quick one, just kind of quick take before we do one final, like, sort of big one, is uh, what was the, this is from Landry Pritchard, who wonders, what was the first film you did a behind the scenes for, and what was that like? 
Well, the first one that I did solo was Hannibal. It was Ridley's Hannibal. Um, I had worked on a few before that, kind of like doing some of like the little, the little side extras, like the storyboard galleries or things like that. But the first one where I actually, you know, came on as like a solo producer on a documentary that was Hannibal, and it was um, it was interesting because before that I had worked on, I had supervised the first Alien DVD, the 20th anniversary one, and that was just mostly supervising the new transfer, the 16 by 9 transfer, and then kind of like working with Fox to kind of put the whole thing together. Um, and then it was um, kind of Gladiator and Legend tag teaming for a bit there between those, and again with with uh, with Legend, uh, this really great documentarian, Jam Kenny, was already making and making a documentary, but he and I kind of collaborated, and I worked. My focus was on locating the director's cut of the film and getting that restored, but then also digging up the kind of like again like kind of still gallery storyboard type things. Um, so that was again me learning and learning a lot from Jam, and then simultaneously, more or less, Gladiator um, was again kind of like let's take things that are off the shelf that are kind of promotional, but then also let's put in cool DVD extra exclusive extra things that are like, you know, deleted scenes, storyboard galleries, commentaries, things like that. So I was like learning little pieces of the process on those early titles. And then Hannibal came up and it just seemed like I was ready. And I just, you know, I did it basically. And that was the, that was the, the first, uh, like that wasn't the first time I went on set or it wasn't the first time that I, you know, produced behind the scenes content, but it was the first time I kind of like was overseeing everything and putting everything together on that set. And then um, also while I was working on Hannibal, I had to go out to Morocco where Ridley was shooting Black Hawk Down to shoot some additional material with him for the Hannibal disc, which was fun. Um, and, uh, and then it just from, from there, it just kind of like he kept working so regularly that as I was finishing one, I was then going onto the set to shoot stuff on the next. And, it, and I would have to say Matchstick Men was the first time where it all came together, where I was on set for all of it, basically shot the hell out of it. My Matchstick Men documentary, it's really rough because we shot on standard def video. So by today's standards, it looks pretty nasty, but it has an honesty and an access that you just do not get with most behind the scenes documentaries. See Ridley lose his temper on that one, um, mm. so it's like basically it's, a, it's you know it's a, I would check out Matchstick Men um, as a uh, as kind of a warts and all kind of like Project Greenlight style doc um, on a Ridley Scott movie. A little guerrilla filmmaking, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. The last the last question uh, we can close with, which came up from multiple people, is uh, what was the most memorable experience you had being present for the entire process of Prometheus coming to life? Wow. Well, I mean, look. Uh, there are a lot of moments, but I have to say the day that H.R. Gear came to the office and just walked around the art department with Ridley and looked at all the designs that were developing. And then he kind of sketched out some ideas of himself for, of, of his own. And, and uh, that was a magical day. That really was. And he's, he was such a, a lovely person and so sweet and nice and soft-spoken. And, um, and it was funny. I, I told the story recently that basically Ridley and Giger were on one side of the table kind of like looking at designs and talking to each other, collaborating. And then if you were to back off from that and look at the other side of the table, there was like a dozen people. And it was, and it really was like, it was like, I, I said it was like the UN, but it was, it was more like that final scene in a clockwork orange when Alex is in bed and all the press is just like at his footstep, <laughs> on the, you know, on the, on the, at the bed. It was like that. It was all these people crowded around just to watch Ridley and Giger, you know, collaborate. And everyone had their camera out. I had I had my video camera and then my my camera phone, I believe. I was shooting like twice with both hands. So um, that was a lot of fun. But um, 
there was a bit of downtime and, and, and Yeager, you know, asked about me and what I was doing. And, and he said, when I told him who I was, he says, oh, I have something for you. And he reached into his bag and he pulled out the, the Yeager short film DVD that he had put together, that he had produced. And he, and he signed it to me. And it's, you know, it's definitely one of my, my treasures from, you know, those days. But that, I would say Yeager showing up. Again, uh, there's like probably like 20, 30 other moments I could tell you about, but that was the one where it kind of like brought the past and the future together in a one moment. And that's where, that was like pure alien, like those two guys together. And lest uh, we need any more uh, selling points for people to watch The Furious Gods, which if you haven't yet, you know, do it. Um, there, much of that is captured on the film uh, of, of Giger visiting. And really, one of my favorite moments in it is, is Ridley kind of taking Giger by the shoulder and walking around and showing the, the production artwork and, um, and talking about. And, and you can see Ridley almost looks like a kid. He's explaining how excited he is about some of the things in it, like some of the columns. And he's pointing out, like, look at how this does this. And you can see Giger kind of like nodding his head and being like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And um, and it's an amazing moment that you were there to capture. Um, and, and we're and we're just so lucky, you know, in so many ways, with obviously with Dangerous Days and with so many other films we treasure, um, that we have somebody like you who is in some ways one of us, just a lifelong science fiction nerd who is documenting this stuff in such an eloquent way. And I feel like uh, we're just, we're, we're, we're thankful that you're on the show tonight. We're thankful that you're here safe and sound during these uncertain times. And we're thankful that you've given us um, just so many wonderful gateways into these works of art that define in some ways our, our lives. So thank you very much, Charles. Um, well, thank you for those amazingly kind uh, words and I, I'm glad you guys are doing well and you're hanging in there and I hope everyone listening is doing the same they're, they're staying safe they're taking care of themselves and you know we'll get through this and you know in the meantime let's just do the best we can and and, and if you have the free time if you're able to you know watch uh, watch some of these alien discs and check out what we're talking about you know but uh, I, I know that a lot of people have to you know a lot of people are struggling and they're suffering but if you are like so many of my friends on social media who are posting every five minutes of their day and everything that they're watching <laughs> i do as well you know why not watch some of this stuff if you can um but I, I'm re- it was really great talking to you guys and i hope i talk to you again soon and uh you know hopefully the, the news will get better and better as we keep talking last but not least uh in reference to another comment i made about uh ridley scott film not being a ridley scott film without a charles documentary Blade Runner film without a Charles de la documentary is also not a Blade Runner film. And I, you are sorely missed from, uh, despite what you might think, or we haven't gone into any opinions on Blade Runner 2049. I have dreams of, of what you could do with a behind the scenes documentary for, for that film. Um, because no matter what people think it was historical that it was made. So. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, I started it. I got, I got like, I got tons of footage that I shot, you know. But I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day. But uh, uh, yeah, well, thank you for saying that. It's very kind of you to say that. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Charles. Thanks. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.